pipe, not the crack pipe. Only pipe. All right, man. So what's up? You ready to do this? Let's do it. Let's ready to do it. this? Yes, All right. So welcome back to Hoop and Loathing, the podcast about nothing, but mainly basketball brought to you by two morons that know absolutely nothing, but just like to spitball and talk nonsense. Oh, also, shout out to Carmelo. I can see this is going to be a recurring theme, huh? This is my thing, bro. All right. How you been? Man, here. Another day, another dollar. Bro, I went to the beach earlier this week. Rockaway Beach. I've been talking a lot of smack about New York beaches, how they don't measure up to Miami beaches, which they don't. But you remember that beach we went to, New Smyrna? Like yep. the most dangerous shark beach in the world. Shark infested waters. Shark yeah, infested waters in, in the coast of Florida. Well, I actually prefer this one. To, I actually prefer this one to that one. So that's really? positive. Yeah. New Smyrna was nice. You take the sharks away and it was a pretty nice beach. We have a fun episode in store for you guys. We are both super fans of two players. It so happens that both two players were drafted in the same draft, which I consider one of the three or two greatest NBA drafts of all time, which we both know is the 2003 NBA draft. That's going to be fun. Obviously, people are going to hate it because, oh, my God, you know, so fuck them. We're going to do the first 14, the lottery picks. Nobody cares where Jose Calderon is going to end up on this list. But before that, I want to touch um, real quick on the number one issue or the number one news story in basketball from this past week. And that would be the Kyrie Irving, Dwight Howard situation where they've amassed the coalition of players that are against the comeback and would rather have players not play and focus on social justice issues of the time, which it's kind of hard to be against that. But before we get there, I just wanted to know your opinion on should we actually resume this season or should we take, um, we take up arms like Kyrie and Dwight Howard want to do protest by sitting out and hopefully that leads to some tangible changes or social justice reform. I'm going to preface this by saying that uh, I don't know the full extent to which or the full quote or the full thoughts of Kyrie Irving and Dwight Howard and Avery Bradley and all the other NBA players who have chosen or are choosing to sit out until further notice. Here's what I do know. Kyrie Irving and these other players uh, think that it's a good idea to sit out because we need to focus our attention on something far more serious, which is the oppression of minorities and specifically black people in America. And um, I assume that they think that resuming sports and resuming a normal way of life is going to shift the attention away from that. Is that what you gather as well? I actually read what they were saying. And while it's hard to disagree with their premise because we are dealing with something more important right now. We're trying to get feasible social justice reforms passed across the country. My only issue is, and you brought this up, was that you said, oh, I don't know what their plan is. And from everything that I've read and all their quotes, it doesn't really seem like they have a plan. It seems as if their plan is just sitting out. Like that's their initiative. That's what they believe is gonna, is gonna create change. Like a boycott, when, essentially. Yeah, like a boycott. And for me, it just shows a lack of insight. And it's hard for me to say that because I'm not one to ever disagree with a civic protest. If you feel like this is something that you have to do, 
to get something done that's important and beneficial to millions of Americans, who am I to tell you no? I feel like I just disagree with the methodology because when it comes to athletes, their biggest platform, unless you're LeBron James, who has millions, hundreds of millions of followers on social media, to put in perspective, according to the last census, there's around 350 million people in the United States. LeBron James through social media reaches roughly a third of those Americans. They're not all American, I get that, but for the sake of this argument, let's just say that everyone that follows him is in, lives in the United States. That's about a third of the population. But when you're Kyrie Irving, and I'm, I don't want to go into Kyrie Irving's millennial attitude towards life, where he goes around trolling that the earth is flat, where he goes around apologizing to the woman that cheated on him like a sucker. To me, it's more like you're just saying things to say them. Like you don't actually have a tangible plan at hand. For example, we actually have basketball players, professional basketball players and ex-players doing tangible things in their community. Jalen Rose in Detroit has a leadership academy that sends kids to college every year. LeBron James, for example, has his I Promise Academy that does the same thing, that brings up poor and impoverished kids, gets them an education and gets them to higher, higher educational learning. In these times, he's also planning a protest on Juneteenth, for those who don't know. Juneteenth, also known as Freedom Day or Jubilee Day, is an American holiday celebrated annually on June 19th. It commemorates June 19th, 1865, when Union General Gordon Granger read federal orders in Galveston, Texas, that all previously enslaved people in Texas were free. So that was the last state to take up emancipation. It's also a big deal that he's holding this protest in Tulsa because it was the site of the Tulsa massacre. I have to say that I was not familiar with the Tulsa massacre until recently when I saw the HBO show Watchmen. And for those that don't know, the Tulsa massacre of 1921 took place on May 31st and June 1st, 1921, when mobs of white residents attacked black residents and businesses of the Greenwood district in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's also considered the single worst incident of racial violence in American history. So pretty much the racist community of Tulsa, Oklahoma destroyed Black Wall Street, as it's called. Something that I didn't know, I didn't learn in school. And I don't know if you learned it in school, but I didn't. No, I, I, I did not learn about that in school. I also first learned about it through uh, the HBO series Watchmen. And it was a very interesting thing to learn because it's such a historic event. Uh, it's such a tragic event that you'd think that it would be one of the one of the things that would be most widely taught as far as American history goes. Which in terms of itself shows the amount of social reform that we need in this country because both of us went to school in Miami, a predominantly minority community. And so if you're going to learn about these things, shouldn't it be in a place like Miami? Shouldn't it be in a place like Atlanta? Shouldn't it be in a place like Houston, Texas? But I, the fact that LeBron is organizing this community outreach and protest in Tulsa, Oklahoma on June, on June 19th, and also doing a bunch of extensive work on voter reform shows that there's actual plans, you know, that you can take place. Russell Westbrook, for example, he's doing extensive groundwork on LA reforms, right, as we speak. He hasn't stopped since the death of Nipsey Hussle. Go on his social platforms. He's just constantly posting up important dates, important platforms for the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think the most important example of athletes taking an actual stand and having a plan and actually doing something would be Maya Moore. No one's done what Maya Moore is doing as we speak. And she's about to sit out her second season of professional basketball in the middle of her prime. 
someone who came into the WNBA and has won four WNBA championships, but she's taken it upon herself to fight for the wrongful conviction of Jonathan Irons. She met Jonathan Irons in 2007, and Jonathan Irons is currently serving a 50-year sentence after being convicted of burglary and assaulting a homeowner with a gun. Now, the reason why this is so important is because Jonathan Irons was 16 at the time, and he was convicted as an adult. But the police officer and the prosecutor that testified against him and that prosecuted him claimed that Jonathan Irons not only committed the crime, but confessed to the crimes committed, something that Irons and his lawyers vehemently deny to this day. It's also good to know that the conversation, this official conversation that led to the arrest and led to the conviction of Jonathan Irons was never recorded. So how, how is one to know? So Maya Moore is on her ground using her platform as an athlete to get things done. I feel that the fact that Kyrie Irving is just willy-nilly spitting these things out without having a plan in place shows a very millennial attitude towards things. Me tweeting about something is enough. Me doing the bare minimum is enough. If you have a plan, if your protest and sitting out is going to lead to something, then by all means, do it. I love basketball. You love basketball. If we don't get to see basketball for the remainder of the year because of this, so be it, as long as it comes with, in, with actual change. But until they prove to me that there's a plan behind this protest, that there's a plan behind this, I'm not, I, I don't support it. Because your, your platform is playing basketball. You're going to reach more people through your platform. So if you want to do something, do it through your platform, not sitting at home. Again, I'm not one to argue or put down someone's idea of a civil protest because I think it's important. And like I mentioned in Migrant Opinions, it's a muscle and it's a muscle that the more we do, the better we get at and the more we get out of it. Yeah, I agree with your points. And um, with Kyrie specifically, uh, I'm not opposed to NBA players or any athletes sitting out a season or not playing any games as a means to uh, protest social injustice. But there needs to be a, a plan in, in, you know, a carefully thought out plan in place. And I don't think he's he has that as you as you mentioned um and i also saw something that austin rivers said uh i don't have the full quote in front of me but he said something along the lines of um there's a lot of nba players that do want to play basketball and there's a lot of nba players that don't make the kind of money that kyrie makes so the implications of sitting out for an nba player like kyrie irving who makes 34 million dollars a year are not as great as those for the 15th man on any given NBA team who's fighting for a spot in the NBA. And so while Kyrie Irving and other max contract players can afford to sit out, not just financially, but because their future is secure, a lot of NBA players don't have that same guarantee. And so it's a lot more difficult um, and, and a lot more trying for, for these other NBA players to, you know, make a decision like that or for, or for, them for, for the decision to be made for them. So in that respect, I, I don't agree with it um, unless there is a plan in place that will instill change. And the other thing is that, you know, the two things are not, in, in my opinion, are not mutually exclusive. I think you can still be an advocate for change and you can still do things. I mean, we've seen Jalen Brown and, and um, uh, Dame Lillard out in the streets with the people that are protesting. They're out there sharing their voice, speaking their piece, using their platforms to get to spread awareness. And, and I mean, I don't know where they stand on the resumption of the NBA season, but my point is that you can do, you can, you can do both. 
Now, I don't know if Kyrie Irving has a vendetta against the NBA itself. Uh, the fact that white NBA owners will be the beneficiaries um, upon the resumption of the season. So I can't speak on that. But um, as, as Austin Rivers also mentioned, bringing the NBA back, that would be beneficial to a lot of, obviously the NBA community, the NBA fan community is made up of mostly minorities, I would say. And I think Austin Rivers says something along the lines of, you know, if we can come back, if we can bring back the season and give these kids something to aspire to, something to, you know, a form of entertainment to keep them off the streets, to keep them from doing negative things, let's say. And, and I don't want to misquote him, but he says something along those lines. Uh, and he wasn't uh, putting faults on anybody, but he basically said that the resumption of the NBA season is a positive thing and we can do that and also advocate for change at the same time. And, and I think that's where I stand on that. To piggyback off your point, a lot of players, like you said, are in the NBA aren't financially stable or aren't financially secure like Kyrie Irving or Kevin Durant and LeBron, LeBron James. But they, I'm assuming that a lot of them also do a lot of work in their communities and try to are, are activists in their own right. And what I can say is by sitting out, you do not get paid. And a lot of these guys depend on the paycheck, not just for their livelihoods, but probably depend on this paycheck to run their foundations, to run their certain social activism work that they do on the side. And if you were to sit out, you would be giving, not only would it show that the players union is broken, but you would be giving leverage to owners to take more of the pie when the CBA comes up to vote. Because by sitting out this year, the NBA owners can simply break the current CBA that's in place. So all that work that LeBron James and Chris Paul have done to maximize, play, maximize player earnings throughout the years, just goes by the wayside because they've completely lost a lot of leverage that they've gained throughout the years. So that's something else to consider when it comes to this. And again, just saying something, tweeting something is not enough. Going outside to just hold a sign in front of a cop is also not enough. Take your activism to useful things. Make sure people sign up for the census and are prop properly counted so that more funds go into certain communities. Make sure that you're doing your best to hold local politicians accountable so that when voting comes, like it's coming right now, I have an absentee ballot right next to me. During these times, you're able to have an absentee ballot. You're not, you're not succumbed to voter fraud or, um, or voter suppression like in Atlanta where they were just voting. And again, like it happens every voting cycle, minority communities are suppressed to the point where they're all forced to vote in these one places where lines can go 10 hours long. People get discouraged, they go home, and then the voices of this community go unheard because a few corrupt politicians, or more than a few, get their way and make sure, make sure that you don't vote. So there's things that you can do. Make sure that your voice is heard. Get off of Twitter. Do something productive with your activism. Make sure that you're supporting the proper causes. Make sure that you're supporting the proper people who are supporting the proper causes. And, you know, don't just be a Twitter hero. Don't just be a Twitter warrior. Do something. It's beneficial. And this goes to Kyrie. This goes to Dwight Howard. This goes to Avery Bradley. I'm not telling you that you're doing something wrong. And I'm not telling you that you're not doing because I'm sure you guys are doing stuff on the side. If you're willing to give up this much leverage in the CBA, if you're willing to give up all this money, if you're willing to give up the livelihoods of players that don't have a proper livelihood in the NBA by sitting out, make sure that all those sacrifices come with a payoff is all I'm saying.
Yeah, you know, awareness is a is a very important thing, and that's step one. It doesn't stop there. So take to Twitter, take to Instagram, take to Facebook to spread awareness, spread messages. If you know of resources, spread that and show that to your followers, to your friends, to anybody you can who will support the cause. Spreading awareness is very important, but it's just the first step. So make sure you get you educate yourselves because no one is going to come and do that for you. No one is going to come and teach you and tell you about who you should vote for, how to vote, or give you the different resources. You have Google at your fingertips, so use that. Use that power. Try to educate yourselves. Try to educate others. Um, don't bring other people down because they don't know. A lot of people may be ignorant, but not of their own volition. We just, you know, a lot of communities are underserved, uh, are uneducated by no fault of their own. If you happen to be in a position of privilege and in a position of power um, where you are educated and you have the resources or you, you know of resources, share that. You know, sharing messages is very important. If, if you're not up to going out and protesting and being on the front lines, you don't have to be. But just do whatever you can, you know, to be a part of this positive movement. Great points by you. Great points all throughout. And now that we get the important stuff out of the way, I want to bring the energy back to the shits and giggles. In commemoration, in my view, because I didn't have, again, didn't have a podcast at the time, with the retirement of Dwayne Wade and the retirement of Chris Bosch, uh, I'd like to get in, and we'd both like to get in, the redraft of my favorite draft of all time because it produced my favorite player and your favorite player, the 2003 NBA draft. We're not going to do all of it. We're just going to do the lottery because I don't think you care who's at 30, who's at 31, or however many teams we have. I think I'll start it off with the easiest one because there's not much to talk about. We both know who it is. I'd rather hear Mike's points on other things. Obviously, for the number one overall pick, we got LeBron James. LeBron James, I've hyped him up enough. He is my GOAT, has been my GOAT, will be my GOAT, F. Jordan. By the way, may I throw out that you remember all that talk that I was having with you that that documentary was a puff piece and all that stuff? How much was, information I mean, has leaked out after that that Jordan was full of shit? I mean... Any any audio tapes could be leaked. Any misinformation could be cleared up. I still saw him perform on the basketball court every night. So he's still going to be the greatest of all time to me. Give him all the roses you want, but fuck, man. Like, we all knew he was a dick. But now, like I was saying earlier, he was involved in the Isaiah Thomas situation for the Dream Team. And that pizza story was full of shit, according to Scottie Pippen himself. I have a degree in reading Twitter conversations or reading tweets. And although you don't need any letters to summon up what he said, which is, yeah, you got sick off of pizza and pizza alone. Bullshit. Fuck you. You know, fuck you. So Michael Jordan slander aside, we have LeBron James, who was the initial number one overall pick, who was the original number one overall pick, who solidifies his place in NBA history a long time ago, three-time champion, two-time with the Miami Heat and Eric Spolstra. Gave Cleveland hit their first championship, probably only championship in a long time. First championship ever. And is not just a champion on the court, but is a bastion off the court for social justice reform. He's put hundreds, if not thousands, of kids through school in an impoverished area of Akron, Ohio. His status as a top human being is, is unmatched. With my pick, our pick, 
number one overall pick in the 2003 redraft by Hoop and Loathing is LeBron F. and James. Yeah, that's a clear cut number one in any draft class. He will go number one except for 84. Um, at number two, <laughs> which is one year into this, one year post this draft, we saw what a mistake. Well, actually, not really, because Detroit had the number two pick, and they went on, went on to win a championship that year, having drafted Darko Milicic originally at number two. But I think if the Pistons could go back to 03, considering the, uh, you know, the career that this man ended up having, they would definitely opt to go with your favorite player, one of my favorite players, Dwayne Wade, <laughs> which... Um, it would be interesting to see how he would fit with that team because obviously in hindsight, we saw what a benefit Rip Hamilton was to them and what he was able to do running off screens, just driving defenses crazy with, with being on the perimeter. And I've seen interviews where he's, where he's talked about how he managed to get free and use the pick or use screens to his advantage and hit those clutch jump shots. But with all that said, Dwayne Wade is one of the greatest, players of all time one of the greatest shooting guards of all time and while the Pistons Pistons did win one championship I think they would have won they, they would have been a real dynasty with with the Wade at the two guard maybe Rip Hamilton coming off the bench or uh, maybe trading him for some other pieces but I think the Wade goes number two I think clear cut and it's a big man of you to admit that Carmelo Anthony was not better than Dwayne Wade although you would never admit to the contrary well let me clear something up I think one-on-one Melo will take Wade 10 out of 10 times. But as far as team players go, I think D Wade undoubtedly goes before Melo. I will agree to disagree considering that Wade is the best shot blocking guard of all time at six, three and having stood by him a couple times in my life at my current six feet tall or six foot stature. That's a very forgiving six, three. So I don't stand with your slander and I'm not sure that Melo could beat him one-on-one, but I, we will never know. I'm sure they know, but we will never know. At my number three, at your number one in your heart, I have Carmelo Anthony. And this one's an easy one. I think Carmelo is, and we brought this up, is one of the most underrated players of our generation. He was one of the toughest guards in the NBA for, for over a decade. And not just me saying it or you saying it, but from the likes of LeBron, Kobe, Wade, Chris Paul, all these players, all these bastions of the game, all these legendary figures, all would attest to how difficult Melo was to score. Also, I think it's fair to say that Melo, of all the players that we're going to name off this list, is probably the best scorer of all of them. Maybe not the best defender, but the best pure scorer. And he was the best kind of scorer for the time. We were still in a time where efficiency wasn't everything. Not to say that Melo wasn't efficient. Because, of course, you know, you're not, a, you're not a great Hall of Fame caliber player without your level of efficiency. But the one-on-one style that Melo brought on the court, the ISO basketball, the jab steps, the step backs, the post-ups, the mid-range game, which was prolific. Let's not forget his first three years in the league where his athleticism was just as prolific as his mid-range game. He developed a three-point game. He brought back the garden for however short of amount of time that it was. It was hard to play in New York again. It was fun to be in New York again and watch him play. He deserves all his praise that he doesn't get, and he deserves all the praise that will come to him. 
And for that, in our redraft order at number three, I have the original pick, Carmelo Anthony. Obviously, I agree wholeheartedly with that pick. Uh, at number four, originally Chris Bosh to the Toronto Raptors. My number four, Chris Bosh to the Toronto Raptors. Obviously, we saw what he did during his time in Miami. Uh, I don't think Chris Bosh was ever really a number one go-to guy which is why he probably didn't have any success in Toronto his first few years there. Um, but he was a very, he was a, the best third option, one of the best third options in NBA history with his time in Miami. And we obviously know what he could do defensively. Um, he was an anchor down there, uh, rebounding, blocking, good one-on-one defender. Offensively, he was good too. He had a good touch um, around the basket. He had a he had a solid jump shot, and he developed a three point shot. He was one of the first, if I remember correctly, one of the first big men that that was able to shoot it consistently from deep. So he was a very talented player, and I would have liked to see uh, I would have liked to see Toronto um, with Bosch and Vince Carter. I think Vince Carter was dealt because ultimately he didn't want to be he didn't want to defer to Bosch. They were going in that direction. And I don't think Vince Carter liked that. Obviously, I don't know the, the details of that, but I would have liked to see what they could have done together. I think Chris Bosch is a number one, was a number one, and had all the potential of being greater than he was. I just feel like Chris Bosch was a man out of his time. He was your prototypical center now, almost 15 years ago. He was a stretch center towards his later years with Miami. But not just a stretch center, like he was a prolific stretch center. His three-point percentages were astronomical. It could be said that the Heat would have probably won four out of four championships if Eric Eric Folster would have allowed him to shoot more from three, you know, or if he would have convinced him earlier on to move past the three-point line. Kind of like how we talk with Lamar, we talk about LaMarcus Aldridge now, how LaMarcus Aldridge could have been even more of a prolific scorer, even more of a prolific player if he had stepped back earlier. But Chris Bosch was your prototypical big man these days, super athletic, super agile, can handle the rock, played amazing defense, can move his feet with the best of them. Personality-wise, he meshes so much better now with this generation than what he did with his incoming generation. You know, he was clowned for being effeminate, and he was clowned for being outspoken, and he was clowned for being looking like a raptor. And all jokes he, he kind of does, though. He does. He, he, he does. He was the perfect player for this generation. And I'm so sad that his career was cut short because of blood clots. I'm so sad that he wasn't able to develop, uh, to continue and further pad his Hall of Fame career. But it is a Hall of Fame career. Uh, I called no- him soft many a time during his time with the Heat. Because I saw him get, like, eaten up sometimes. And I was like, man, you're better than that. Like, grab that fucking rebound. But at the end of the day, he, he ended up being one of my favorite players. I'm glad he came to the Heat because I don't think we would have won a championship without him. And, and it, it is sad that his, his career went down with the blood clots because he had a, a really good career ahead of him. Lastly, before I move on to my pick, to, to get to your point, I remember in 2013 when they won their second championship, I was at that red and white game, that initial preseason game where the Heat scrimmage against each other. And Chris Bosch looked like he had put 15 to 20 pounds of muscle on before the season. And it completely wholehearted affected his play at the beginning of the year. His averages were down. He was moving more lethargic. So I, I can see why you say, oh, you know, he's soft and he could have, you know, should have hit the weight room. But 
when I actually did see him in his prime hit the weight room and come in strong, it affected his game to the point where he wasn't as effective as he should have been. But moving on from CB, at my number five pick, our number five pick in the 2003 redraft order, our hoop and loathing redraft order. And this one is where it starts getting fun. I have David West at number five. Now, David West was initially picked 18, and originally at number five was Dwayne Wade. David West came into the league very underappreciated, managed to carve out a career for himself as a deadly baseline shooter, a great post defender, a very tenacious and aggressive player. Towards the end of his career, he also added a three-point shot. He made two all-star games, had a career average of 13.6 points, 6.4 rebounds, two assists. He was never handed the reins to be the guy, so we don't know what it could have looked like. But I, re- I do remember that him and Chris Paul in New Orleans was a hell of a tandem. For that reason alone, I'm going David West, who was initially 18, picked behind a whole slew of scrubs. There were a lot of good picks or a lot of good players in this draft. So, you know, I don't blame people for falling in this draft because obviously given the uh, the scouting reports at the time, maybe that seemed like the right pick, but David West was definitely slept on, you know, in hindsight, looking at his how his career played out. So at number six, originally Chris came into the Clippers. I have Boris Diaw, who went 21st to the Atlanta Hawks. Boris Diaw kind of reminds me, or not reminds me, but uh, he kind of plays played similar to uh, an, uh, Jokic. They, they don't really play similar, but just two big men that play smaller than their size, I guess you could say. Boris Diaw is 6'8", but he could kind of handle the ball like a guard. And he was one of those awkward players kind of to look at because you don't, like, you see him and you don't really think, oh, this guy plays basketball. But he was actually pretty lethal offensively, um, and, he co- and he could hold his own defensively. Uh, he had a good perimeter shot, um, had a solid career. I think he played what, 12, 13, 14 years, 15 years, won a championship with the Spurs. Just a very talented NBA player who fell through the cracks. So I got him going number six to the Clippers. I actually love that pick because Boris Diaw, a lot like Chris Bosh, led this reign in the NBA of the undersized power forward that provided a lot of mobility on defense, ability on offense, and playmaking on offense. The San Antonio Spurs didn't reach the heights that they did the later 2000s and early 2010s if it wasn't for Pop's infusion of Boris Diaw into the lineup. Boris Diaw provided fits for the Heat provided fits for the Lakers, provided fits to anyone that the Spurs played in those years because for some reason we no one could match up with him because he was so strong. Even though he was undersized, he was so strong that he could guard your power forward and your small forward and he can even handle himself sometimes with centers. What made him stand out was his playmaking ability. He uh, was one of the first people that I think we, we garnered the praise of being called, of being called the baby LeBron something that players like James Johnson have benefited and received massive contracts throughout the years from being called the same thing. So I can really appreciate your pick. My pick at number seven in our redraft would actually be Kyle Korver. Now Kyle Korver at his heyday when uh, the Atlanta Hawks and Mike Budenholzer implemented uh, their baby San Antonio system in Atlanta and returned the highlight factory to its former glory. 
number one seeds all over the NBA. I mean, in the Eastern Conference, deep playoff runs. Uh, they had a squad. I think that's something that we should praise is longevity. If you have a long career, you should benefit from a higher, higher redraft order because you've proven to be useful throughout the years. It's not just his longevity. His three-point shooting is one of the greatest of all time. His career three-point shooting is 42%. This even came before this current generation where we're just chucking threes all over the place. Hence why his career averages of 9.7, three rebounds, and only two three-pointers per game were a little misleading to the actual character of his play. If he had been drafted in this generation of basketball, you know, we would have hold it, held him to higher regards, although we do hold him to high regards. He's one of the three greatest three-point shooters of, our, of all time. And he was initially drafted in the second round, number 51 overall. So for that alone, I have Kyle Korver as my number seven in the 2003 redraft order. I like that pick. And he definitely fell really deep into, into, the, into the draft. Um, ended up being one of the best three-point shooters of all time. So I, I agree with your pick. At number eight, I got, well, originally at number eight was TJ Ford. I don't know if many people remember TJ Ford. Uh, he went to the Bucks. A lot of people might just remember him from his super baggy shorts on media day, which look nothing like what NBA players are wearing today. If, if you don't know what I'm talking about, Google TJ Ford media day and you'll see what I'm talking about. But at my, at my pick for number eight in the redraft, I got, Maybe an unpopular pick because people might might not know his game too well, but I have Kirk Heinrich, who I would liken to Andre Miller, just a basic point guard, but got the job done. Very solid NBA career, played with the Bulls the majority of his career and was was very solid for them during his tenure there. That's when they made some some playoff runs uh, in the early 2000s. And he was a very good point guard for them. Good defensively, solid offensively didn't have any particular skill uh, that would make him stand out, but he was very solid overall, uh, much like Andre Miller, who also had a, a very long career and, 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 in my opinion, is a very underrated point guard in um, the ranks of NBA history. Uh, a lot of uh, NBA players would agree with that. And I think even Dwayne Wade has, has gone on record to say that Kirk Heinrich was one of his toughest matchups because of the way Kirk Heinrich guarded him. It was, it was tough to score on him. So Kirk Heinrich, based on his ability, based on what he was able to do during his time in the NBA, uh, I got him at with, with my number eight pick going to Milwaukee. No guard ever gave me more fits watching play basketball because they were so unathletic than Kirk Heinrich. It was so infuriating. There wasn't anything special about his level of athleticism. He looked stupid wearing those bug glasses that he used to wear to protect his eyes, but he got the job done and he got the job done for a long time. It was a solid, solid, solid pick for my number nine pick in the 2003 redraft order by Hoop and Lowling. I actually have Mo Williams. Mo Williams is one of those players that, a la J.R. Smith, that would cook you up in a microwave if you let him. He was wildly inconsistent a lot of times. When he was on, he was on. He was a volume scorer a la Isaiah Thomas before Isaiah Thomas. I don't mean... Detroit Pistons Isaiah Thomas I mean four foot seven Boston Celtics Isaiah Thomas Mo Williams most prominent role ever was that year that Le that he went to the finals with LeBron James he did make it to one all-star game he did win a championship he had career averages of 13 points per game 
nearly three rebounds and nearly five assists per game. Not to mention the fact that his career was adequately in length, if I may so put it. For that, I have him, the original 57th pick overall, Mo Williams. I'm sorry, 47th pick overall. I have him in my number nine sl- slot, which was originally some guy named Mike Sweetney. Look that was up. a big man. And of course, the Knicks picked him because it's the fucking Knicks. They don't know any better. Uh, I like that pick. And, and Mo Williams is one of those players that uh, he was a former, a former all-star. And a lot of people probably don't remember him, but he was a problem when he was in the league. And like you said, he could light it up any given day. So you had to, you had to account for him. Now, did his career play out the way it probably should have? I mean, if you consider the fact that he went 47th, you might argue that he had a better career than most would have thought. But then you, when you see the kind of performances he had, you wonder, oh, did he really live up to his potential after all? But overall, he did have a solid career, did play with LeBron James, former All-Star, and definitely the Utah Jazz got a steal on that, the 47th pick. Now, for my number 10, uh, now it's when, it's when it gets a little more complicated because we still have a lot of good, a good, solid players. At this point, we're past the superstars, but we still have a lot of solid players. So originally, number 10 was Jarvis Hayes to the Washington Wizards, who, who was pretty good. He was solid. Not a lottery pick, but uh, or not lo- like he shouldn't have been a lottery pick is what I'm trying to say. But he did have a, a, a solid, you know, tenure with the, with the Wizards. At my number 10, I would go with a player that I really liked watching when, when he was with Phoenix, Le- Leandro Barbosa, who was lightning quick. He could shoot lights out. The, and, and that Phoenix team was really fun to watch. I think that was around 07. They had Amari Stoudemire, Steve Nash, Sean Marion. I think they might have had Boris Diaw at that time too, uh, Leandro Barbosa. And uh, he ended up winning a championship eventually with the Warriors in 2015, I believe, uh, their first championship. And he was a really solid player for them. And he had a good career overall, played in the NBA 13 years. Uh, with a number of teams, and man, he—you could just see it when he would get, when he would be on the court. He was tough to guard because he was lightning fast, and and I don't mean fast like from baseline to baseline. I mean his his quickness, his lateral movement was just—it was it was amazing to watch. Uh, he was kind of w- one of those weird guards where he wasn't a true point guard, wasn't really a shooting guard. He was kind of in between, uh, like a combo guard, but uh, he was he was. He was one of the better players in that draft. I got him going number 10. Solid pick, uh, the Brazilian blur. Probably Brazil's greatest import into the NBA. Arguably him and Nene Hilario. Just called Nene because, you know, gangsta. Nene. Denver Nuggets legend. Uh, I really like the Leandro Barbosa pick. I think Leandro Barbosa was the perfect six-man coming off the bench for those Steve Nash Phoenix Suns team. Him coming in to provide a spark of energy for those up-tempo teams, almost like a change of pace at the point guard position where you couldn't, I say change of pace, but you couldn't really take a break. You had Steve Nash and then you get replaced by Leandro Barbosa and it's crazy. And later on in his career, when he developed a three-point shot, became even more hard to, hard to handle. I, I got to give it to you. I think that's a great pick. So my pick for the 11th overall in this redraft would have to be Chris Kamen, who was drafted number six overall. Now, Chris Kamen wasn't the sexiest pick, but he was an above average center 
He was an all-star in 2010, and he was the backbone of those pre-Chris Paul, you know, Corey Maggette, uh Los Angeles Clippers teams, you know, that uh, while they didn't win a lot of games per se, they were incredibly hard to play against. They were physical. They were tenacious. And I feel like I have to give, you know, big men some love. So for that pick, I'm throwing in Chris Kamen. Yeah, that, that Clippers team was just in the middle of the pack, basically, during the 2000s. They weren't a great team. They weren't a bad team. They were just there enough to make the playoffs. They made a playoff run, or they they made the playoffs, I think it was 2006, where they beat uh, the Nuggets in the first round. And, again, they didn't have a lot of talent on that team, but they played really gritty, as you said. Chris Kamen was the anchor defensively. Um, again, he wasn't super talented, but he was he was solid and he played the game right. So I like that. I like that pick. Um, so now at number eleven or number twelve. Twelve. All right, number twelve was originally Nick Collison going to the to the SuperSonics. That's also I, a solid player right there. And I think I'm going to stick with Nick Collison going to the SuperSonics. So Nick Collison was on that Kansas team that la- that lost to Syracuse in 03, the national championship game. Uh, in 03 in college. Um, he was their superstar in Kansas. Uh, got drafted the same, obviously the same year as Melo um, and went to Seattle where he spent, well, Seattle that eventually turned into Oklahoma City and he eventually, or he did spend his entire career there. He retired in 2018, I believe, or 2019. So he's one of those few players that stayed their entire career with one team. And not only did he spend his entire career with one team, but he had a solid uh 15 year career where he he had a big role on these teams eventually he got benched in favor of the now the now wildly popular uh Stephen Adams but while he was starting he was very solid for them again not not like flashy not a superstar never made an all-star game but he did just enough he played his role to a T uh didn't have to run any plays for him he was going to do the dirty work he was going to get you rebounds. He was going to hold down the paint. Did every, you know, the intangibles were there. Did everything he needed to do in his role um, as a center for those teams that were that had some relative success in the 2000s. So I got Nick Collison, um, originally 12, still going 12 to the Sonics. I think at this point in the lottery, like if you managed to draft someone at 12 that played 15 years in your franchise, you did something right, regardless of whether or not he made an all-star game or not. But Nick Collison is not only was at one point Russell Westbrook's best friend, which is an achievement on its own, he's a great segue to my number 13 pick because, and I'm going to throw him out there, and maybe you hate it, but I don't give a fuck. It's the undrafted captain for the Miami Heat, the 305 legend, the donks on donks on donks, the king of braids, the number one enforcer in the NBA. The OG. The OG Udonis Haslam at the 13th pick. He was undrafted out of Florida. It was an undersized fat center in Florida. So fat and undersized indeed that he didn't, not only did he not get drafted, but he had to play in Portugal for a season because of those forthcomings that he lost weight, got in shape, became tenacious, and developed all the traits that we so love. He helped the Miami Heat shut down, well, not help. He shut down Dirk Nowitzki in 2006 to help Miami solidify their first NBA championship in franchise history. 
he's, I don't know, I love this man so much. For those accolades alone, Udonis, in my redraft order, the first undrafted player off the, off the board, Udonis Haslam at number 13. So usually I just laugh whenever you mention the Heat because it's so obviously biased. But I got to give it to you on this one because UD was a big-time steal, which I don't even know if you could call him a steal because he went undrafted. Yeah, that's still a steal because you still picked him up. Definitely a steal. You're a uh, freaking OG captain of your franchise. And uh, a personal anecdote. Back when he was a free agent, I think in 05 or 06, his rookie contract was up. I was so excited because obviously um, I'm a Heat fan, but I'm also a Mellow fan. And at, that was the time when Denver was really putting pieces together to make a championship run. And I was like, man, if we can get UD in free agency, we're going to take this shit. Mellow's going to get his first chip. And nope. uh, obviously things didn't turn out that way. Uh, but UD got a championship. He got three of them now with Miami, so I ain't complaining. So I like that pick. 14th, right? Last pick Last in the lottery. In the lottery, baby. There's still some good names out there, too. Oh, bro, there's a lot of them. I don't know who you're picking up, but I'll throw some players out real quick that, uh, that you're probably not going to pick. Mm-hmm. You know, we still have Jose Calderon left. You know, yep. Kendrick Perkins left. Mm-hmm. We still have Travis Outlaw left. You know, Which Travis have- Outlaw wasn't a great NBA player, but he was an athletic freak. He played with Portland some years, and, man, he, whenever I would watch them play, this man would just head and shoulders above the rim every time. You know, we have Luke Ridnour. There's a lot of players that, you know, we're leaving off, but that's what makes this draft class so great because there was an, an abundance of not just great Hall of Fame players that were drafted because when you draft, when four or five Hall of Famers are drafted in, or three, I'm sorry, three or four Hall of Famers are drafted in the same class, that's a good class. That's a great class. That's an astonishing class. But not only when you get your Hall of Famers, but when you have a bunch of decade-long careers on a list in one draft and undrafted players, it just shows how 2003 shaped the landscape of basketball for a full decade plus. I agree wholeheartedly. One of the best draft classes of all time, arguably the best, depending on who you ask. Um, some other names that you didn't mention, Matt Bonner, the Red Mamba. And I'm surprised you didn't mention this guy, James Jones. James Jones no? James Jones was one of those players where uh, he was really good at what he did. Like Kyle Korver is the same kind of player that James Jones is. But Kyle Korver did it at such a higher efficiency and higher volume that he kind of earned his spot on this list in the lottery pick. I just feel like James Jones was underutilized for a long time after he left uh, Phoenix a laundry list of great NBA players that had solid careers. James Jones won two championships in Miami, a 305 legend also. I I could see him being in one of these, but there's an abundance of players that you can use up on your last pick. So what you got? Yeah, I mean, at this point, you can't really go wrong because all of these players had something to contribute. On winning teams. Yeah. And another, uh, another player you didn't mention, another Heat favorite, Heat fan favorite during his time there, uh, Jason Capono, I think he won the three-point shooting contest one year while he was there, too. Jason Capono, that, that one year, was the greatest three-point shooter in the history of basketball. I don't understand what the hell happened. He just, he was a solid three-point shooter his whole career. He came to Miami, he became dominant. It was like a beautiful butterfly, you know? It was just, his game just was, wasn't lasting, but it was beautiful while it lasted. I agree. And um, I'm looking at the 0-3 draft 
class, the the sixty picks, and I and I pretty much have something to say about every single player. So before I do that, let me just get into my fourteenth pick already. And now it's my turn to be biased, my time to be biased, and I'm gonna go with Steve Blake out of Miami Woo! Senior High School, local hero, played with UD during his time in Miami High. Shaky Rodriguez, he- baby, shaky, shaky. I forgot where he went to college, but... Uh, Maryland. He won a championship in Maryland. Go. Maryland. And an- another one of those solid point guards, along with Kirk Heinrich, uh, Luke Ridnauer, that just had a solid career. Again, they weren't standout players. They weren't superstars. He never made an all-star game, but he played on solid teams, and he was a solid contributor. He played with Melo in Denver. He played with Kobe in L.A. And he had One some of Kobe's others. favorite teammates, might I add. Yeah, I mean, Steve Blake, you look at him and you, you think he's a punk, but he, he he don't take shit from nobody and he plays the game the right way. High and, IQ. Um, That's one thing you have to say about smart. Steve Blake. He's very super smart. smart on the court. Yeah. So the last pick in the lottery at number 14, who was originally Luke Ridnour, of course, to the Sonics, I got uh, Steve Blake. Love the pick. I'll give you one last honorable mention. When I saw him play, in 06, in the finals, I swear to God, he scared the living shit out of me. I know who you're talking about. You know, and it wasn't Josh Howard. It no? was Marquise Daniels. Really? Yeah, Marquise Daniels. He had a couple good games, yeah. Marquise Daniels was one of those players that came into the league unhyped, but then the moment he got on the floor his first year, just you could tell that there was, like, talent oozing from his, like, pores. You know, and I, I don't know what happened in his, in his life and career that didn't allow him to reach the levels of heights. It was probably injury. You know, I'm just I'm going to blame it on my lack of, of Marquise Daniels knowledge, but I'm assuming it must have been injury because he was uber athletic. He had a mid range game that was I'm not going to say unparalleled. That's that's uh, calm down there. But he had a solid mid range game, solid off the dribble, amazing bounce can guard all your guards and your small forwards. Josh Howard was the Dallas Mavericks best player, in my opinion, in the 06 uh, finals. But it was Marquise Daniels that scared me the most because every time he got on that floor, he did work and he scared the shit out of me. So little quick honorable mention to Marquise Daniels, wherever you are. Also, you had one of the weirdest and best chains I've ever seen in my fucking life. So good for you, guy. Good for you for spending all that money on that fucking chain. And if you can Google Marquise Daniels chain, you'll know what the fuck I'm talking about. You'll laugh inside, but you know what? It's not ridiculous for the time, so fuck you. I'm looking up the chain now because I actually have no idea what to talk about. Marquise Daniels chain? Yeah. Is that himself? He got a pendant <laughs> of himself? <laughs> Damn. That's that's early two thousands, bro. You see that shit, bro. You can you can time. even say that he's like tra- trailblazing because T Pain did the same shit, Rick Ross did the same shit. So fucking Marquise Daniels, as one of the best fucking chains that I've ever seen in my fucking life. He's my honorable mention pick for this redrafting. This is one of the best, just top to bottom, one of the best draft classes of all time. Because there's really no going wrong here with who you pick. No, man, because it's whoever, whoever fits your team best, that's it, because you can't go wrong. Because I'm looking back at this list, right? You, you know, and outside of the top four, you had guys like David West that were perennial, not all-stars, but perennial important pieces on really good teams. You got guys like Boris Diaw that was 
exceptionally important to those San Antonio Spurs championship teams. Kirk Heinrich, who had a solid, solid career. Kyle Korver, who had a solid career, historic career, might I add, as one of the greatest three-point shooters of all time. Mo Williams, who had a solid career. Leandro Barbosa, who one could say, if he was put in a better system, would have excelled more in the NBA. And then you got guys like Nick Collison and Udonis Haslam that were the emotional backbones of their team for a decade plus. Udonis Haslam and Nick Collison both took less money in contracts to stay where they were. Solid overall draft. Also, that chain by Marquise Daniels is fucking amazing. <laughs> yeah, Google that shit if you, if you haven't seen it. Because I hadn't seen it. With that said, I would have loved to see Melo go too, just so he could have some championships in his resume. And maybe then ESPN would have put him in the top 74 list. But somehow, I doubt he would still make the cut. Personally, Melo should have probably never left Denver. I can understand why a city boy didn't fit in personally with the the laid back hipster environment of Denver and the mountains and how quiet it could be. Well, Denver was on a downward slope at that point. What I do think his fuck up was, was demanding the trade because New York gave up so much to get him. If they would have just waited for that off season to sign him as a free agent and kept all their core pieces, they could, they could have done some real damage. I agree with you there. Him demanding the trade specifically to New York him giving Denver all the leverage in the trade and New York having to sacrifice so much pieces to get mellow. Given what we've seen the near decade plus since that trade occurred, you just have to have more faith in the, the Nuggets organization, who, by the way, had um, Masai Ujiri in the front office at that time. Personally, I had more faith, have more faith for the Denver Nuggets front office than I do for anything coming out of the Knicks franchise or front office. Or Yeah, I agree with that. Whatever. So I hope you guys enjoyed this. You know, we'll, we'll do shit like this more often. Now I'm really starting to think that maybe we should do the chain show that I really wanted to do because you motherfuckers need to look at them chains. As far as us two, we're leaving. You do whatever the fuck you want. You don't have to go home, but you gotta get the fuck out of here. <laughs>